with me, please, to page 1655. 1655 in your pew Bibles or on your large print sheets, page 1655, as we'll be reading the first eight verses of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, reading verses 1 through 8. My friends, this is the Word of God. Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. He sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. My friends, today we look the first of a two-part series on verses 4 through 8 of Revelation 1, readings to the seven Asian churches. We see in this text that John greets the seven churches, greets the seven churches by the power of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. John greets the seven churches by the power of the triune God. As we consider this difficult New Testament book, the book of Revelation, the most mysterious of all books, perhaps, in the Bible, we must consider it in the context of all of Scripture. And so other similar literature, other similar material, what we call apocalyptic literature, apocalypse, other apocalyptic literature may, may serve as a reliable guide for our interpretation. So we can compare Revelation to places like Ezekiel and Daniel and parts of Isaiah. 
One must be careful, you see, not to be either literalistic nor fanciful. Neither literal, we must not be either literalistic, using thinking this these various terms here in a literalistic way, nor do we want to go off in all kinds of tangents, all kinds of speculations, if you will, all kinds of ideas that we dream up as if this was a Hollywood movie. Notice in the first verse, as we looked at last week, that Christ himself signified it. He symbolized this revelation. He signed it, if you will. And any symbolism, though, must be based on the teaching of Scripture. This is, as we noted, the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is the revelation that is to say, not just about him, but the revelation which derives from him, which comes from him, the revelation which he himself provides to us, the revelation from Jesus Christ. Last time we made the point that the focus of this prophecy is on the divine Son, the Son of God, Jesus the Christ. And therefore the focus, the focus of the book of Revelation is not on eschatology, the end times as such, nor is the focus on heathen nations as such, nor is it on enemy missiles and tanks, as some ridiculous commentators would suggest. Rather, the focus is on Jesus. And today, our text then begins to present the Lord Jesus in his glory. It presents the Lord Jesus in his glory. We're going to see this not just in verses 4 through 8, but then when we go on to verses 9 through 20, Christ among the lampstand. I mean, just John himself is overwhelmed by this vision. And my friends, we too should be overwhelmed by this vision of who Jesus is. That should be our reaction. We should, as it were, fall on our faces before Jesus. And so we see then here, uh, starting in uh, verse 4 and uh, going into verse 5, the salutation, the greeting, the greeting itself. And so that's the, that's the point that we're going to be looking at today. And so verse 4, we read John. John, of course, is the apostle whom Jesus loved, the apostle who leaned on the breast of Jesus, the apostle who was the author of the Gospel of John, and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and now the book of Revelation. It is that John, not John the Baptist, it's John the Apostle. John, and we read then in verse 4, to the seven churches which are in Asia. Now these churches then we're going to be dealing with, uh, and we're going to see them specifically mentioned in verse 11, and then they're going to be dealt with, particularly in chapters 2 and 3. These seven churches uh, were in the most famous cities of Asia Minor, or what we might call Lesser Asia. So when you look, children, when you look later at the map, I want you all to look at that. Go with Miss Amy or Miss Penny. They'll be happy to point out, either one will be happy to point out to you where we're talking about today. 
And so they will point out to you the big, the huge continent of Asia. We're, of course, in North America. But the huge continent of Asia. And then there's a little bit of it called Lesser Asia or Asia Minor, what is today basically the country of Turkey. And so there was a little bit of what is today the country of Turkey. That's where, that, that, those are the, where the churches were that are being addressed in the book of Revelation. Asia was a province of the Roman Empire, as I said, covering basically today's Turkey. Now there were undoubtedly other congregations in this province, and the churches named here possibly were actually the Presbyteries. That is to say, quite possible that, that we're talking about regional churches you see, when it talks about the churches. It may not simply be one congregation. It could very well be groups of congregations, presbyteries, regional bodies. But notice that the number seven is significant. It's a number that keeps on appearing throughout this book. We'll see it over and over and over again, the number seven. It is very important. And why is it important? Because it is the number of perfection. It's the number of perfection, the number seven. It's the number that represents the work of God. Just as an aside, you all heard of 666. Why 666? At the very least, it is an indication of the work of the devil. You see, he approximates, but he never comes up to the work of God. And so the number seven, then, is the number of perfection. So to the seven churches in Asia, what is this greeting? Grace to you and peace. Now, this is an ordinary greeting from apostles, but please note with me, we talked a little bit about this when we talked about the benediction. Remember the final blessing, the benediction that we talked about uh, several weeks ago at the end of 1 Thessalonians? This is not mere wishful thinking. The, the point is, it's a pronouncement of blessing. And specifically here, this blessing then, that is this grace and peace, it is indicating that the word of God in Christ is actually blessing the people. That's what he's saying. Grace and peace. My friends, we need both of those things. We need grace and we need peace. We need grace. For you see, the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, is exercising His powerful influence upon and within the elect, the chosen ones, so that they become partakers of God's salvation. Grace is for those who are the elect. And believers, my friends, are in constant need of this grace. Grace to you and peace. And it's interesting, is it not, that grace and peace, I could say naturally go together, but let me put it this way, they supernaturally go together. Grace and peace. For peace is the sweet evidence and the assurance of God's grace. Grace and peace. Objectively, peace is established between God 
and men the peace that is found through the cross of Christ by, by God's Son taking the wrath of God upon himself at the cross. So he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That, my friends, is the way by which peace is established. The peace treaty that we have, the treaty that we have broken between God and men, the covenant we have broken. God is at war with us, but God's wrath is appeased by means of this sacrifice of his son at the cross. And so objectively then, peace is established between God and men. And as a result of that peace having been established, we have a happiness in our hearts in the knowledge that our sins have been blotted out, that our sins have been taken away, that they've been cast into the sea, so that God will remember them against us no more forever. We need that reality of peace that God brings to us through the cross. But have that reality, it brings peace within our souls. There is then peace in our hearts toward God, no more animosity on our part. No more hatred for God on our part. In our natural state, we don't want God. We reject God. It's only if we have God's grace and then God's peace that we are able ourselves to feel feelings of peace toward God. And we have peace with all things. We have peace with others. This is the basis. Right, if we're reconciled to God, we're able to be reconciled to each other. We're able to be reconciled to each other. No matter what our background, socioeconomic, ethnic, geographical, whatever our background may be, political, whatever it is, we are able to have peace with one another if we have peace with God. We're also able to have peace in various circumstances. As a matter of fact, this peace, this peace, comes to the church in the midst of a wicked and turbulent world, a world that is described in Scripture when it talks about the world, how it's like the sea, you know, all that mire, all that mud, all that muck, all the waves of the sea being stirred up, if you will. That's what we see in the world today. We don't see any peace. We see no peace in this world. You see people are trying to stir things up, quite frankly. They're trying to stir up hatred in our society. But this peace, then, comes to the church in the midst of a wicked and turbulent world. That was true 2,000 years ago, 1,900 years ago, in terms of this book of Revelation, writing to these seven churches. But, my friends, it is true for the church today. Grace and peace, notice what it says, from him who is and who was and who is to come. Now we get to the Trinity, the Trinity. Three persons, one God, the Trinity. Now first of all, we see then to him, uh, to him who is and who was and who is to come. This prophecy, by the way, uh, recalls the formula. Uh, this recalls uh, the formula that you find 
in uh, Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14, when God appears to Moses and says, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. The one who is the great I am, Yahweh or Jehovah, the one who has absolute being in himself, the one who has forever existed without any reference to his creation, the one who has no cause but is the cause of all things, the one in whom there is no shadow or variableness of turning, the one who is, who exists and has forever but also the one who was, for he is the God of the past. He is the one who created, and he is the one who came in the person of the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. And furthermore, not only is he the one who is, the great I am, and the one who was, but he is the one who is coming as well, who is to come. He continues to come. He continues to intervene in the affairs of men and nations. He continues to exercise his, his sovereign rule. And he will come at the end of time. So we have the one who is, the triune God, God, and then the Holy Spirit. The one who is before the throne. Notice what it says here, from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, this reference here, this reference to the seven spirits, or this, this reference, let me say, is to the spirit as he has been poured out on the church. The spirit, in his essence, proceeds from the Father and the Son. But the emphasis here is upon the Christ, upon Jesus, as he bestows his spirit upon his people for salvation. From the seven spirits from be who are before his throne. See, seven, remember, it's the number of perfection. It implies the fullness of God's grace. The fullness of God's grace. Let's be clear here. It's not that literally there are seven spirits. There's only one Holy Spirit. But he's described with the number seven in order to emphasize his perfection. And he, of course, is the one who also, as we have noted, represented by the number seven. And so we see God, who is and was and is to come. We see the seven spirits who are before his throne. But this grace and peace also comes from Jesus Christ. This grace and peace comes from Jesus, the one whose name means Savior, salvation. The one who is the Christ the anointed one of God, the Messiah. But notice how he is described here. He is described, first of all, as the faithful witness. That's kind of an interesting term, is it? The faithful witness. Now, of course, you know, we're called upon, are we not, to be witnesses. We're called upon to be witnesses. Many times uh, we, we uh, refer to Isaiah 43 and uh, verse... Uh, 10, you are my witnesses, says the Lord. We're to be witnesses to God, 
concerning God. But notice, you are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. And so it is the Lord Jesus, you see, who fulfills this in the fullest sense of being the witness of God. In Isaiah 50, in Isaiah 50, verse 4, we read, The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God has opened my ear. So in other words, Jesus himself is the one who is witnessing, as it were, to who God is. In John 8, in John 8, verses 13 and 14, Jesus says, or the Pharisees said to Jesus, you bear witness of yourself or your witness is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where am I go and where I am going. And so during his earthly ministry then, Jesus was the faithful witness. When he was on trial, he bore witness before Pontius Pilate. He bore witness before Pontius Pilate. John chapter 8 and verse 37. But this is why Paul is able to say in 1 Timothy chapter 6, in 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 13, I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate. He told Pontius Pilate, he witnessed to Pilate, even when he, Jesus, was on trial. And Jesus is the faithful witness as well, because he bears witness in his word upon which we can depend. And so this grace and peace then comes from the triune God, including Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, but more than that, who is the first begotten from the dead. This phrase points to the resurrection of Christ. As the angel said, he is not here, he is risen. Jesus is not here, he is risen. But not only is he risen, not only is he raised from the dead, but he is the firstborn out of the grave. He is the one who rises by his own will and power. And my friends, he is the one who will lead his people out of death. But Jesus Christ not only is the faithful witness and not only is the, faith, the first begotten of the dead, but he, my friends, is the prince of the kings of the earth. Now, Scripture proclaims this over and over and over again. This truth that Jesus is the Lord of all. Revelation 17, verse 14. These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings. In uh, Revelation 19 and verse 16, we read, 
And he, that is Jesus, has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We sang earlier in our service today from Psalm 2, which clearly teaches that it is the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, who is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, before whom all kings must bow. And so we are taught here by, by this term, ruler over the kings of the earth. We are told that the wicked rulers are under his control. The wicked, all rulers of earth, including the wicked ones, including those in the Roman Empire who persecuted the church, including those who have persecuted the church throughout history, all rulers are under his sovereign control. He is the ruler over the kings of the earth. At the same time, all rulers are to be righteous and to acknowledge his rule. And furthermore, someday all kings shall bow down before him. All kings shall bow down before him as the knowledge of the glory of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. Now, I have three points of application. The first is this. Listen to me carefully. Do not be ashamed of the political and governmental implications of the kingship of Christ. Do not be ashamed of the political and governmental implications of Christ's kingship. Now listen to me carefully. God is not a Democrat. God is not a Republican. He is not bound by our political parties. But at the same time, some actions and laws are good, some are evil. Some actions and laws are good, and some are evil. And we need to acknowledge that too. Government is not neutral. Rulers are not neutral. Jesus said, you, who is not for me is against me. And laws, then, either reflect the just rule of Christ, or they don't. And if they don't reflect his just rule, then they are in opposition to that. The word of God incarnate should be acknowledged, not only in terms of the laws, but should be acknowledged as the king of the nations. The nations should engage in covenanting to be the Lord's. And by the way, this is what we do not do in this country. We, the United States of America, we are in rebellion against King Jesus for our failure to recognize him as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we need to be very clear about that fact. We are under 
his judgment, for our rebellion, for our failure to recognize him, and for all of the wicked laws that flow from that failure. The nation should engage in covenanting to be the Lord's. Our laws should reflect his law and righteousness. And this is in contrast to tyranny and to arbitrary and absolutely wicked laws. Do not be ashamed of the political and governmental implications of Christ's kingship. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Number two, embrace the truth that Jesus Christ exercises this kingship because he is the Savior. Embrace the truth that Christ exercises this kingship because he is the Savior. Now you'll see this right here in verse 5. Did you notice it? How is he described? The faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. So what do we see there? Prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, he's the faithful witness. Priest, his sacrifice, he's the firstborn from the dead. He is king, he's ruler over the kings of the earth. And so we see then all of his work, if you will, bound together. And so he exercises this kingship because he is the Savior. That's why, as we read from Matthew 28 today, that's why just before giving the Great Commission, what does he say? All power in heaven and earth has been given to me as he rose again from the dead. Indeed, in order to be resurrected, he first had to die. He can't be the firstborn from the dead unless he was dead. And my friends, there is no crown without the cross. And so embrace the truth that Jesus Christ exercises this kingship that we see here in this passage and throughout Revelation precisely because he is the Savior. My friends, the last point of application is this. Have you experienced God's grace and peace? You see, there is only one way of salvation. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He is our peace. He is the Prince of Peace, as well as Prince of the Kings of the Earth. He is the Prince of Peace. He is the one who brought about peace and reconciliation with God through the cross. And He is the one who ushers us into the presence of the eternal God, the one who is and who was and who is to come. So I ask you this afternoon, have you experienced God's grace and peace? Amen. Will you please stand for prayer? And our Father, we thank Thee for the salvation that is found in Him who is our Savior and Lord. We thank Thee, Lord, that He is the one who uh, is not only the eternal Son of God, 
but who also is has been declared the Son of God with power. So we thank thee, Father, that all power has been granted to him on the basis of his mediatorial work. So we thank thee for that. And we pray, Father, that we would see in our own day, in our own nation, in our own state, and here in this city of Atlanta, we pray, Lord, that more and more we would see his just and gracious rule being manifest. And we pray, Father, that thy church would be faithful, faithful even unto death if necessary, but faithful in presenting the claims of Christ. And so hear this our prayer, Lord, and take the glory unto thyself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.